0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, my name's John. I'm a pastor here at the church, and it's great to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, you're catching us in our uh, on our kickoff for our, our fall sermon series that's going to be taking us through the, the letter of Romans, as uh, Jana already mentioned. And um, I'm, I'm excited to do this. I, I um To be quite honest, I've been kind of avoiding preaching straight through Romans because it's a bit intimidating. This is kind of the Mount Everest of preaching, (laughs) so I've been kind of biding my time, but it feels right, and I'm excited to dive in. Uh, The fall, we're going to spend looking at Romans 1 through 4, and we'll take a break for Advent, and then at the first of the year, we'll pick up with Romans 5 through 8, take a little break for Lent, and finish up the first half of Romans before the summer comes. So, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll in that time read every verse in those eight chapters of Romans in the service and think about them together. Uh, Martin Luther called uh, Romans the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. I mean, this this letter has received accolades from any theologian who's really thought about things. Luther went on to say, "It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word." By heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. So just to be clear, if we were to take Martin Luther on his recommendation, all of us would memorize this entire letter and hold it right here. It's it's that important. The British theologian John Stott said of Romans, It's the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. So here we go, right? This is, this is fantastic stuff. And we're, we're gonna read uh, the passage in just a moment, uh, but before we dive into that, I thought I'd, I just wanted to give you a little context for the letter. We won't do this part every week, so this is a one and done kind of thing. So listen up, this is what was going on in the world as Paul was writing that letter. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote it as a letter to the church in Rome. So it's good to ask what was going on in Rome what was going on in Paul's life. What was going on in Rome was that the church was a mess. It was in turmoil. It was a congregation made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. In Rome, far to the west in that day, it was mostly Gentile believers. And there was great conflict in the church between these two groups. It wasn't an ethnic thing. It was a theological disagreement. Because the Jewish believers had come to this new faith in Jesus And they experienced the whole thing just as the next step in what they'd always believed, the next step in Judaism. And therefore, they believed that every Christian should obey all of the Jewish law. And the Gentile believers uh, also believed that this came out of Judaism, but they saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish law, bringing something brand new to the world. And they did not believe that Christians needed to follow the Jewish law. So there's this, this tension and it, it's not only a disagreement, it's that both sides were proud of their positions. And they put a stake in the ground. It was that kind of thing. Right? And I think the biggest reason Paul wrote this letter was to help them reconcile that. To bring unity to the church. And if, if you happen to be newer to the Bible, uh, you might be new to the idea that Paul was in a unique position to act as a reconciling agent between those two two groups because he grew up being a a kind of Jew of Jews. He had all the right credentials from a religious perspective in Judaism. But then he ended up being called by God to be a missionary to the Gentiles. So he had this kind of dual commitment that put him in the perfect place to speak to people experiencing that tension. Uh, John Stott, that British theologian, said this, Paul was determined to make a full and fresh statement of the apostolic gospel, which would not compromise any of its revealed truth, but which would at the same time resolve the conflict between Jews and Gentiles over the covenant and the law, and so promote unity in the church. So, Roman church in turmoil. What was going on in Paul's life? The short answer is a lot this Jewish-Gentile tension wasn't present just in Rome. It was throughout that, that realm of the Western church in that day. So he was battling this thing on every front. And uh, it, it was quite challenging to him. He was contending for the unity of the, of the church, seeking to articulate how what Jesus had done for all of us was the main thing and should be that which unites all of us across every kind of division Uh, the world can dream up. Ethnic, socioeconomic, land, culture, race, whatever. Paul's saying, look, this brings us together, uh, as he wrote in Galatians, for all are one in Christ. So he's contending for the unity of the church. Uh, So with the the background of this Jewish-Gentile tension, he asks the Romans to pray for him in that. Look what he writes in chapter 15 pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Paul was in the midst of a big capital campaign. Not really a capital campaign, more of a love offering, a fund drive. The church in Jerusalem had fallen on really tough times and Paul was asking all of the Western churches, the Gentile churches, to give a generous financial contribution that he could take back to Jerusalem to help the primarily Jewish church there. So the tension's going on. It's, it's in question whether the Jewish church will actually receive that well. It's in question whether all the churches in the West, the Gentile churches, will participate. You know, He's, he's quarterbacking this very practical effort which could bring tremendous unity to the church and could be a witness to the world That in Jesus, God has given us something that unifies us across all the things around which we naturally divide. It's a a big deal. So you got the Jewish-Gentile tension. You got Paul battling us on every front. You got this contribution brewing. And Paul is also in a personal transition. His first three missionary journeys have concluded and he's turning his eyes toward what's next. So he tells the Romans in this book he wrote this most likely from Corinth, that he's going to travel from Corinth to Jerusalem to drop off the contribution. Then he's gonna go to Rome on his way to preach the gospel in Spain, which was the Western frontier of the Roman world yet unreached by the gospel. And in many ways, Romans is also a missionary introduction letter because he's hoping to unify them in the gospel and then to recruit this newly unified church to be his missionary sending church when he goes to preach the gospel in Spain. Like Antioch had been his sending church before. So that's a lot. But it's not just interesting history. Hold that in your mind. Would you? You've got this Jewish Gentile tension. You've got this big offering going on. You got Paul turning his eyes. Toward the next missionary journey. Going to that place where the gospel. Had yet to be preached. And he's trying to recruit this body. To be his sending Sending church. That's why in Romans you see a couple times the phrase, my gospel. Very interesting phrase. It doesn't mean the gospel. Paul is explaining to this Roman church how he understands the gospel and how he goes about preaching it. That's my gospel. So all these things are happening as we dive into this letter. Writing to a church struggling with unity, holding up the message of Jesus as that which will unify recruiting Romans to join him in praying for this Jewish-Gentile tension. There's strategy there, right? Because it's the tension they're experiencing. He's hoping and praying that it'll be a unifying experience for the church, and he's hoping that this church will become his sending church. So with that, let's listen to the first 13 verses of Romans.
1: I don't yet have the book of Romans memorized, so I'll read it to you today. Romans 1, verses 1 through 13. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness, how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord.
0: You never get a second chance to make a first impression. And with his first six words in this letter, Paul makes a dramatic first impression. It's a hook, a cultural hook that draws everyone in in an instant. And in plain speak says, look, you can't know me unless you know something about Jesus in the gospel because my life is is tied up in his. I mean, Paul's so identified with the gospel that even in introducing himself, he goes right there, right away. Uh, He says of himself, literally, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, called apostle. If you were to translate the six Greek words that open this letter, that's literally what they'd say. Paul. Paul doulos, slave of Christ Jesus. It was a a word used for a servant in that culture and it was far below any Greek person or Roman citizen to assume themselves. They were too preoccupied with being free to ever think of considering describing themselves as a doulos, a servant, a slave. Yet Paul leads with that. Uh, Literally, in the Greek, it's paulos, doulos. It's the second word. Paul, a slave. Instantly, everybody's awake who's hearing this letter. Because the word slave is the opposite in meaning from the word for Lord, kurios, word we used for uh, describing Jesus' role. Slave, Lord. Paul's really clear. Jesus is Lord, and I am his servant. Very clear. So kind of the lowest of the low, completely subservient to Jesus, but called apostle. This was a title of great authority. Everybody in the church knew it. It's a striking contrast. The lowest of the low and the most authoritative in the church. It's an amazing hook. Slave and apostle, humility and authority. In introducing himself, he's doing so in a way that's so countercultural. it's like he's saying to all the Roman church, I do not accept the framework of the world at all. Because the world says, if you're a slave, you have no authority. And the world says, if you have authority, there's no need to be humble because if you have power, you should use it. Presumably over or against those with less power but that's not the way of Jesus, right? And Paul has so aligned himself with the way of Jesus that he just can't help but say something about that way even as he introduces himself because he's been so shaped by it. Oh, that you and I would do this all the time. We're so formed by this, right? It just oozes out of us. Hey, who are you? Slave and called, you know, loved and called. So it's the feeling of the whole intro of this. You can't know me, Paul says, unless you know something of Jesus and the gospel. If you want to know me, you've got to know that I've been changed by God. Paul said he'd been set apart for the gospel of God. Don't don't miss that phrase, the gospel of God. We often talk about the gospel of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus was God. Paul knew that, but he chose the phrase very intentionally, the gospel of God. At its root level, this whole message is about God, that God is real, not a religious idea, That, that God is good, meaning that right and wrong matter to God. It's not just a world of gray. There's right and there's wrong, and God distinguishes between that because God is good, that God is loving, that God loves people. You know John 3:16 and 17. It's not just the John 3:16 part you see in the end zone of a football game for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Don't forget verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is not about condemnation. This is about God loving the world so much that he would come himself in the person of Christ to fulfill our end of the covenant for us, taking upon himself even the bitter and shameful death of the cross. That's the gospel. And Paul's saying, I've been set apart For that gospel of God. The gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Remember the context now. It's important all through the Jewish Gentile thing. The Jewish believers saying, look, this is just an extension of the old way. Gotta keep the law. Gentile believers saying, look, this is brand new. We live in grace, not by law. Paul says, Yes, Jewish believers, you're right. This was promised a long time ago. God has been unfolding this through his prophets for centuries. Yes, Jesus was a descendant of David. You are right. The gospel is old. And Jesus was appointed Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace. Gentile believers, you're right. This is brand new. We've all received grace. Jesus is alive. New birth is possible. New life is possible. Jesus said he came to give us life and life to the full. You're right. The gospel is brand new. The gospel is new and old. Right? The gospel is new in the sense that it fulfills all of the Old Testament promises. The gospel is old in the sense that it has always been God's plan. The first mention of it in scripture comes in Genesis 3.15. Did you know that? Theologians call this the proto Evangelion, the first gospel, God's promise to make things right again. The gospel is old. The gospel is new because it's about Jesus fulfilling all obedience to the divine law on our behalf. That's new. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, whenever we have communion. And yet the gospel is old. And it not only maintains all of the ethical commands of the law, but amplifies them. It's like Paul is saying, hey, Roman church, I don't accept your framework of thinking. It's not an either or, it's a both and. The gospel is new and old. And by the way, it's for everyone everywhere. That This is bigger than, than any of us. It's, it's God's deal and it's for all nations. Unspoken subtext. So get over yourselves and stop bickering. I mean, through him... We received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. All the Gentiles. You know, you take away Jewish people and that's everybody else, everywhere. This is the the Great Commission, right? To make disciples of all nations. That, That doesn't mean to make disciples of a few people in every country. That literally means to make disciples of everyone Everywhere. That's the mission of the church, the mission Jesus gave us. This is God's message, and it's a message for the world. Oh, and one last thing, says Paul, you, Roman church, and now church across time, are among those called to belong to Jesus. To be his completely. And forever. In Christ, we are loved and called, Paul says. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, loved and called, loved by God for real. I mean, it's so easy for us to do this. I, I know it's easy for you because it's easy for me to think about the love of God and not to take the next step and actually internalize and imagine that God actually loves me for real. right? This, this is the message of the New Testament. It's, it's everywhere. In Christ, we can hear the words that God spoke over Jesus at his baptism as words that God speaks over us now. This is my son, my daughter, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Wow. That's what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, start with this. Our Father in heaven, Father, that's the intimate word, Abba, Daddy, It, it, it conveys that understanding of Deep, committed, forever loving relationship. Jesus says, whenever you pray, start by remembering who you are. Start by remembering that you belong to Jesus. You belong to God and God loves you or loved by God. There, there are many false substitutes in this world that promise to offer the secret of being content in any and every situation. They are all liars. Each and every one. Augustine learned this. He learned he has a a God shaped void in his heart. And he also learned that all of us, each and every one, are restless until God is back in the right place in our life. And, And we're made right with God by grace through faith in Jesus. In Christ, you are loved. We are loved. In a mixed-up world where we, you know, we're supposed to love people and use things, but so often that gets turned around and we love things and use people. This message is about God loving you. Not in a week or two when you get it together. Right now. This instant, this moment, right now. We're, we're loved by God, and and called to the obedience that comes from faith and to be set apart as God's countercultural community in the world. So let me unpack those. These both emerge right out of the text. The obedience that comes from faith, or as some translations say, the obedience of faith. I kind of like the way the NIV has it, the obedience that comes from faith, because my understanding is that's the, That's the connotation. It's it's obedience, uh, kind of ethically speaking, that emerges from faith, from trust in Jesus, as as contrasted to a sense of duty or 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 a religious obligation uh, that drives obedience. Right? There's a world of difference between these two things because obedient, obedience that emerges from religious obligation or kind of a sense of duty ends up being just a kind of legalism. A religious checklist of you know to-do boxes. Yep, did that, did that, did that, did that, did that. And it's just this cold kind of non-relational thing. That is not what Paul's talking about. We are called to the obedience that comes from faith, meaning an active relationship with Jesus, where we're interacting with him always and we, we know and trust this person and believe that he has our best interest in mind and therefore we submit willingly. We relent sometimes if we have to. We, we trust and follow. That's what Paul's talking about, called to, th- to that kind of life. Not because we should, but because it's a way better way to live. Because Jesus said he came to give us life and life to the full, and this is the path that leads one into that. So we're called to the obedience that comes from faith and to be God's countercultural community in the world. That comes from this verse, verse seven, and and called to be his holy people. The word holy doesn't mean kind of self-righteous or religiously polished, It simply means set apart for special use. And this has always been God's plan, to have a community of people in the world set apart for the special use of announcing God's goodness and love and redemptive purpose in the world, what God is up to, to join him in his mission in the world. Loved by God and called into the family business, we could think of it as, which is taking the gospel to everyone everywhere to become a mature follower of Jesus so that everybody has that chance to at least have one conversation with a serious Christian and to understand this isn't a pushy thing. There's a depth and a real thing here to to interact with someone filled with the Holy Spirit and have the opportunity to, to really experience well, that was new. I mean, we're, we're called to be God's countercultural community in the world. Loved by God, slave, servant of Jesus, called to be set apart for special use, and called to, to actually follow Jesus, not just think well of him. And all that's just the introduction. Right, this is Paul just saying, hi, I'm Paul. And then he finally gets to the actual greeting, verse seven. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what the gospel brings to people. Grace and peace. It's it's the life in which we live as followers of Jesus. As as tumultuous and unpredictable as the world is, grace and peace in Christ are real. And, And over time, as we Christians have read the scriptures and noticed that in almost all of these epistles, there's this greeting grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is such a solid thing to stand on theologically that most Christians around the world agree that when we're gathered in worship and a person up front, today I think it was Jana who spoke these words, a person leading the congregation in worship says, grace and peace to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit or or grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can legitimately and rightly hear those words as coming directly to us from God himself. That this is the greeting God wants us to receive. Grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Slave and apostle, Paul was. The gospel, new and old. You and I, along with that Roman church, are loved by God and called to follow Jesus as a set-apart kind of community. And all the while, we live in grace and peace. The fruit of the gospel worked out in a human life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. God, thank you for this letter. Uh, Thank you more that we know that the Bible is your word by the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. That you've shown us in ways that we know that, that this book is like no other book, that there's a power here, that there's a truth here. Uh, that no person manufactured, we know. So, Lord, continue to replay your message in our hearts that we might hear you and conform our lives to what it is that you're saying. Give us clarity and courage in that, please, God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.